Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 105. Gorbachev, how he got on top, in his words. Last time, we covered the ever-so-short reigns of the reform-minded Yuri Andropov, the forgettable leadership of Konstantin Chernenko, and the rise of the young man of the Politburo, Mikhail Gorbachev. In today's podcast, I want to cover the rise of Gorbachev in a different manner than I did last time, as I want to cover it from his perspective. His memoirs, which I found to be an amazing read, gives us a sense of what he went through to reach the pinnacle of power in the Soviet Union, and it will also give us a tremendous insight into the reasons for its collapse six years after he took control. Gorbachev's memoirs start with the date 27 November 1978, the day he was made a secretary of the Communist Party Central Committee. He viewed it as a most momentous day in his career. He was at a party after arriving in Moscow from Stavropol. A few hours into the party, a friend came over and told him that Brezhnev was looking for Gorbachev. The general secretary had phoned Mikhail's friend's apartment, trying to get him to the phone, but the friend's son told him he had the wrong number. Something was up, and Gorbachev knew it. He immediately called Chernenko's office, as he was Brezhnev's chief of staff, and told them he'd be right over. Gorbachev came into the office and attempted to explain why he was not available earlier, but Chernenko would have none of it. He just blurted out, At tomorrow's plenum, Leonid Ilyich intends to propose you for election as a secretary of the Central Committee. That's what he wanted to see you about. Gorbachev then asked whether he needed to make a speech or not. Chernenko told him, I don't think a speech by you at the plenum will be needed. Leonid Ilyich will propose your nomination himself, and the Central Committee will therefore back it straight away. Besides, you made a speech not that long ago. At this point, Gorbachev ponders on the question of why they chose him to join the Central Committee, as the leadership was aging, and Gorbachev was a relatively young man at 47, and was known to have strong opinions, something not considered politically healthy at the time. The reason he gives is that Brezhnev felt that due to his successes in the agricultural field, he was competent and that his plans were consistent with Brezhnev's, as Leonid Ilyich was consolidating his power as well as creating his cult of personality. When Kulikov, Gorbachev's mentor, died in July of 1978, Brezhnev needed someone who he believed would be loyal to him, and that would be Mikhail Sergeyevich. The aging of the Politburo was an important issue and was something that Gorbachev was particularly aware of as he recalled a conversation he had with Yuri Andropov as far back as 1975. He told Andropov, quote, up to now, I've imagined that placing young cadres alongside the experienced ones is always a necessity, that this particular practice provides a synthesis, creates a felicitous blend. The older colleagues put you on guard against recklessness, while the younger ones watch out for stagnation and conservatism. And Dropoff dismissed the comment, but seemingly never forgot it. He knew that one of the jokes going around was, quote, 
How will the 27th Party Congress be opened? The delegates will be asked to stand while the members of the Politburo are carried in. The problem was Andropov was one of the old members of the Politburo. In another conversation with Andropov, Gorbachev discovers how things operated in the 1970s version of the Soviet Union. Andropov told him the following, Mikhail, I would like to outline the picture somewhat to you. You see, unity is now the most important thing, and its nerve center is Brezhnev. Remember that. Among the leadership, there have been in the past, uh, how should I say it? I mean, for example, people like Shalest or Shalepin, or Podgorny for that matter. They pulled in different directions. Well, we don't have that anymore, and we have to reinforce this achievement. Into this situation, Gorbachev had to keep true to himself and to keep his belief that certain parts of the system had to be reformed. He also had to do all of that very carefully, as any deviation from the Brezhnev way would mean expulsion from the Central Committee and an end to his ascent up the ladder. Fortunately for him, he knew that Andropov had his back and would give him the advice he needed to stay safe. From here, Gorbachev begins to recount the story of his family and how they arrived in the Stavropol region of Russia due to forced migrations, and this is during the Tsar's time. His mother's side came from Chernigov, and his father's side from the Voronezh province around the time shortly after the reign of Catherine the Great. His great-grandfather settled the family in a town called Privlonoi. The area was filled with relatives, all of whom had the surname Gorbachev. They actually called it Gorbachev land. There were so many Gorbachevs in that region. And one of the most interesting parts of Gorbachev's memoirs is when he talks about his homeland, the cry known as Stavropol. He talks about how diverse the population was, which, while 83% ethnic Russians, it also contained Karachais, Circassians, Abazians, Nogais, Ossessions, Greeks, Armenians, and Turkmen. Gorbachev believed that this diversity, quote, taught tolerance and consideration and respect toward others. He also recounted the terrible effect the Russian Civil War had on the people of his cry. The official position was that the war was between the bourgeoisie and the landowners on one side and the workers and peasants on the other. But Gorbachev knew better. It was a battle that split all of society apart even families. The toll was enormous. He recalled a story told by General Vasily Ivanovich Kniga, a Red Army veteran who, when asked to go to a village he had fought near, said the following, 40 years after the war. Will you give me an armed escort? An escort? What for? Well, it's an old story, explained Vasily Ivanovich, morosely. We massacred the entire village during the Civil War. What do you mean by massacre? Just like that. We slaughtered them. And that's it. You killed everyone? 
Well, maybe not everybody, but I keep thinking, maybe someone is still alive. Who would remember? Gorbachev was stunned by the conversation, as he wondered how many villages were destroyed and lives lost. We begin to discover, discover something about his beliefs. He said the following, Then and now, I often happen to read profound arguments that violence is not only justified, but even necessary in the transition to a new society. It goes without saying that during revolutions, bloodshed is, indeed, often impossible to avoid. But to look upon violence as a panacea, to encourage it in the name of some allegedly higher aims, that is, to accept the slaughter of entire families, villages, peoples. No, this is inadmissible. His first trauma growing up was the arrests of his two grandfathers, who he was very close to, and this was during the Great Purges of 1937 and 1938. Both were falsely accused of being agitators, and both were imprisoned and tortured. Gorbachev's wife, Riza, her grandfather was also arrested and imprisoned, but his outcome was far worse, as he was executed on trumped-up charges. Gorbachev could only get himself to look into these charges in August of 1991 and saw how false the cases were. Having his grandfathers being accused as being enemies of the state was traumatic. As he puts it, all of this was a great shock to me and has remained engraved in my memory ever since. The next traumatic event that shaped who he became was, of course, the Great Patriotic War, also known as World War II. His first impression was how all the men in the village disappeared, including his father. Then refugees began to appear in town from the cities and villages the Nazis had taken over. Then he remembered what came next, the incredibly cold and snowy winter, and how it started so early on October 8th. Little communication about how the war was going came through into town as the snows made it impossible for news to get through. As he remembered it, because of all the work in the fields he had to do, work his father would have done, he changed from a child into an adult. Gorbachev puts it thus, and we, the wartime children, skipped from childhood directly into adulthood. Then the occupation of his area by the Germans began, with all of the stress and fear that came with it. But Gorbachev remembers the courage of his grandmother and mother in the face of arrest and questioning. The great fear was of mass executions that were coming. He mentioned that there was a rumor that all the villagers would be shot on January 26, 1943. But luckily for him and his family, the Red Army liberated the area just five days before the massacre was to occur. One incident that hit him hard in early 1943, after the snows had melted and he and a number of children headed out to roam the countryside in search of trophies, as he put it. Gorbachev came upon a scene that he describes thusly, which I must warn you, is quite graphic. There we stumbled upon the remains of Red Army soldiers, who had fought their last battle there in summer 1942. 
It was an unspeakable horror. Decaying corpses, partly devoured by animals, skulls and rusted helmets, bleached bones, rifles protruding from the sleeves of rotting jackets. There was a light machine gun, some hand grenades, heaps of empty cartridges. There they lay, and the gaping eye sockets. We came home in a state of shock. As he continued to say, I was fourteen when the war ended. Our generation is the generation of wartime children. It has burned us, leaving its mark on both our characters and our view of the world. It is this type of comment that makes us understand why he was so passionate about easing Cold War tensions and bringing a sense of peace to the world. The coming years of rebuilding and famine were trying on the Gorbachev family, but they made him a stronger person. This was especially true when his father came back from the war, twice wounded, to work the fields with him. The work was brutally hard. Twenty-hour days were not unheard of. But all the hard work with his father made them become closer, and as Gorbachev puts it, we became true friends. One story I'd like to share uh, from his memoirs showed the camaraderie between the members of the Kolkhoz during harvest time. Quote, The team leader started pressing me. What are you sitting around? The harvest is over. Come on, have a drink. It's time you became a real man. Looked at my father, who did not say anything and just laughed. They gave me a full mug. I thought it was vodka but it turned out to be pure alcohol. There's a special technique for drinking it. First you exhale and down the alcohol at once, washing it down immediately with cold water without catching your breath. I simply downed it. The state I was in. The mechanics were laughing their heads off. My father, most of all. But the lesson served me well, indeed. After that experience, I have never felt the pleasure in drinking vodka or spirits. The others agreed on the spot to avenge me and played a practical joke on the team leader, the one behind the prank. They filled a mug with alcohol, and instead of water to wash it down, they gave him another mug of alcohol. The team leader exhaled, downed one mug, then the other. Everyone screamed with laughter. He just grunted. He was a tough character. In fact, they were all good friends. They helped each other in their hard life, and they knew how to work. Despite all the hard work, there was rarely enough food to go around. People were starving after the war, especially 1946. Famine once again set in. But in 1948, things improved greatly. Gorbachev proudly told of the crop he and his father brought in. It was so large that his father won the Order of Lenin, and he won the Order of the Red Banner of Labor when he was just 17. He goes on to recall the hardships of the times after the war. As Gorbachev puts it, quote, Life was hard for my country. In fact, it was not life, rather a struggle to survive. In wartime, people knew that they had to save their motherland. 
and they believed that after the war and after victory, a decent life would be ahead of us. But nothing changed after the war, especially during the post-war years. There was nothing but hard labor again, and the belief that once Reconstruction was complete, we would finally be able to lead a normal life. Hope inspired the most laborious, humiliating work, instilling it with a meaning and helping us to endure all hardships. In 1950, Gorbachev made the decision to enter Moscow State University, and in particular, the law school. The fact that he was already a candidate member of the Communist Party helped get him accepted. The first weeks of his time in Moscow were a bit of a shock, as the difference between his small town and Moscow was huge. Still, he managed and studied hard, and it was a scary time as it was the time of the last of Stalin's purges and repressions. When he once questioned a professor doing an exam, his grade was lowered, which cost him his personal grant. He learned that independent thought was not tolerated. And the reason it wasn't tolerated were because professors were being accused of a new Stalinist crime, rootless cosmopolitanism. Some were dismissed, some arrested, and some sent to gulags in Siberia. Education was based on Stalin's ideology, and it was not as it is today in creating minds that can be developed into critical thinkers. You didn't think. You recited. By 1952, Gorbachev became a full member of the Communist Party, but he was disturbed by events that were occurring around him, and in particular the doctor's plot and the ensuing, quote, anti-Semitic provocations against the Jews, who were unjustly accused of treason. He was considered a bit of a dissident by some of his fellow students, although he didn't think so. He did feel that the way their society was behaving was not to his liking, though. Riza, his wife, published an excerpt of a letter he wrote to her in her book, I Hope, Reminiscences and Reflections. Mikhail Sergeyevich writes, I am so depressed by the situation here, and I feel it especially keenly every time I receive a letter from you. It brings with it so much that is good, dear, close, and understandable, and one feels all the more keenly how disgusting my surroundings are here, especially the matter of life of the local bosses. The acceptance of convention, subordination, with everything predetermined, the open impudence of officials, and the arrogance. When you look at one of the leaders, you see nothing outstanding, apart from his belly. But what a plum, what self-assurance, and the condescending, patronizing tone. When Stalin died, he noticed a thaw take place in his last two years at the university. More and more, students and professors began to challenge the dogma of the Stalin era. It was under this thaw that Gorbachev began to mold his new way of thinking, critically questioning the status quo. The next life-changing event Gorbachev describes in his memoirs is his courtship and eventual marriage to Riza Titorenko, the love of his life. After we first met her at a nightclub, 
He tried repeatedly to get a date with her, but she consistently turned him down. After he first laid eyes on her, he describes how, quote, there began for me a period of torment and delight. He was madly in love with her. Months passed until, in December of 1951, she finally agreed to take a long walk with him, where they talked for hours. From that day forward, they were inseparable. She now was so in love with him that she told him that they should stop seeing each other as she didn't know if she could handle it if something should happen to him. By 1953, they decided to get married and did so on September 25th. Then a law came to be that completely shattered Gorbachev's plans to go into law, and that was a rule that stated that young people out of law school could not be hired to work in the prosecutor's office because of the need to, quote, fight for the restoration of socialist justice. He decided, well, if law practice is not a career possibility, then governmental work would be the way to go. Back to Stavropol, Gorbachev began to work in the Komsomol, where he was appointed as the deputy head of agitation and propaganda department. It meant that he would have to travel through the entire Stavropol cry, spreading the party word. It was a sobering experience as he began to see how bad living conditions were for the people. Here is a description of one such episode. Quote, the sight was indeed incredible. Down in the valley, on both sides of the river Gorkaya Balka, the village stretched out some 20 kilometers. As far as the eye could see, scattered at random, low, smoke-belching huts, blackened, dilapidated fences. Down there, in those miserable dwellings, people led some kind of life. But the streets, if you could call them streets, were deserted, as if the plague had ravaged the entire village. No contacts or ties existed between these shanty-town microcosms, just the everlasting barking of the dogs. And I told myself that this was the reason why the young fled this godforsaken village. They fled from desolation and horror, from the terror of being buried alive. On the hillside I wondered, how is it possible? How can anyone live like that? People deserve a better life. That was always on my mind. Then another earth-shattering event occurred. The 20th Communist Party Congress, where Nikita Khrushchev gave his famous secret speech condemning Joseph Stalin's reign. It was Gorbachev's job to head out to the Novo Alexandrovsky district to explain the speech and the position of the Communist Party leaders. When he went to the secretary of the district party, N.I. Beratinekov, he was met with sympathy for his position as he said, I'll be frank with you, the people just refused to accept the condemnation of the personality cult. Well, the people he was referring to were the members of the party apparatus. Opinions of the speech was one of approval, one of disapproval, but the majority people, they just said, What for? What is the point of washing one's dirty laundry in public, speaking publicly about these things and fueling unrest among the people? <laughs> 
The big fear among the party leaders was the question of uh, where were they when the purges killed millions of people, and how complicit were they? It was making a lot of people very uncomfortable. Next time, we pick up the maturing of Mikhail Sergeyevich and his move up the ladder of power through his own memoirs. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'd like to make an announcement that I'll be starting a new blog site shortly at www.russianrulershistory.com, where I'll be posting pictures, maps, videos, as well as listings of the books I've used to produce the podcast. And you'll also have a place for comments and suggestions like you do on the Facebook page. Now, I'll also have a place where you can make a donation to help with the expense of putting together the podcast. And it's not, you don't have to. But if you enjoy the work and you'd like to help out, I'd appreciate it. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Also, don't forget our Facebook page at Russian Rulers History Podcast, where you can join our ever-expanding group and ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. And so, as always, Das Vidanya. Ispasiba Bolshoya.